Father, we, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, your goodness and kindness towards us. We thank you that you have provided for us your word so that we can be shaped more into the image of your son. We pray that you would do that work through your word this morning. We pray that you'd help us to understand what it is you have said, to, to understand what it is, what it ma- why it matters to us, what you want us to do with it, Lord. We pray that you would stick it deep into our hearts and our minds as you'll be changing us through your word. Lord, we pray for John. We give you thanks for the successful surgery. We pray that uh, any further tests and therapies would go well and that he would be uh, able to be fully up and going again soon. We look forward to, to having him with us. We pray that you'd strengthen him, strengthen Carmen, help her to care for him well, and pray that you'd make it clear how we as a, a church body can be a blessing to them. So, Father, we offer you this time, and we pray that you would work through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you were with us last week, you know that we started into a summer series on the book of Ephesians, and there are two inserts in your bulletin. There's a blue piece of cardstock, which is the memory passage that we're working on through this summer. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. The second one is just a regular piece of paper with today's passage on it. And the idea is you can mark it up. If you didn't bring your own Bible to mark up, you can mark that up. And uh, so what I'd like to do right now is go through the first two verses of that memory passage with you guys. I know 10 verses is a lot, but if we do a little bit each week by the end of the series, hopefully you'll have all 10 verses down. So what I'm going to do is we're going to put it up on the screen, the first two verses. We're just going to say it out loud together, and then we'll take it off the screen, and we'll try again. Now, if you've been practicing this week, you're like, yeah, I got this, no problem. If you're like, I totally forgot, then uh, just you know, make no noise and mouth it with your, or move your, your lips to, to make it look like you're saying it when we get to it. So, All right, so we're going to say Ephesians 1 and 2, then we're going to say the verse. So everybody together now reading it from the screen, Ephesians I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Let's do that. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay. You want to go through that again, or do you want to take it off the screen and try it? One more time. All right. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All right. Now, that sentence is structured in a way that we don't normally talk that makes it a little harder, but through repetition, It'll start to sink in for you. So let's take it off the screen, see if we can do it. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, so if you're a little behind, work on it this week, a little bit each day. I find that first thing in the morning, last thing at night, and when we're sitting at dinner with the kids, makes a huge difference for me. We're going to add verse 3 for next week, so we'll do 1 through 3 together next week when we get together. All right, like I said, we're into a new series on Ephesians, 
And Ephesians, as we looked at last week, is a short book. It's six short chapters long. It was written by a guy that we call the Apostle Paul. He wrote it from jail in Rome to a group of churches in what we would call Turkey today at, around the city of Ephesus. So let's throw our map up there, Matthew. We'll see what we're talking about. So Rome all the way over on the left, going to Ephesus kind of in the middle there. The idea is that Paul wrote this letter, sent it to Ephesus, uh, copies were probably made and then just spread all over the region there. Years later then, it would be recognized as the church as part of the actual Bible, saying that it is in fact inspired by God. The book of Ephesians is both an immensely theological book, very theologically rich, and it's also very practical. The first three chapters are the theology side of it. What are we to believe? And specifically, it lays out this theological argument that we have been reconciled to God and to each other through the death of Christ on the cross. The second half then says, so what? If we are reconciled to God and to each other through the death of Christ on the cross, how then should we live? How does that affect our marriages? How does that affect the parent-child relationship? How does it affect those we work with or just have regular relationships with? That's the second half of the book. Sometimes we're tempted to jump to the practical stuff, jumping over the theological foundation, but we're going to do it in the order that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it. The name of our sermon series is Reconciled for Life, and that's the idea of those two halves. We are reconciled, vertically and horizontally, for life. How do we now live our lives as reconciled children of God? Today we're going to look at the first 14 verses of chapter 1. These are the same ones that we looked at last week. Last week we looked at the first main idea, which is that God in His sovereign rulership over the whole world, he has sovereignly chosen to save people. God chooses who he will save. If you weren't with us last week, and that's a new idea to you, that can be shocking. As we read through the passage, you'll see that that idea is in there over and over again. The word predestined is in there. As we were singing the second song, it talks about um, us being destined, like this is our destiny. And that got me thinking about the word if we talk about having a destiny, we always think of it as a good thing. That's my destiny, right? But there's something in us that if we put the prefix pre in front of it, predestined, then we want to buck against that. No, I want my, my free will. I want my choice. But in reality, there is no destiny without the pre, right? If if you have a destiny, if you have something that you're, you're meant to work towards, meant to achieve, it's who you're supposed to be, how did you get that destiny? Well, it was determined beforehand. So in a sense, the word predestined is a little bit of a, of a repetition. You can't have that destiny without the pre. If God chooses us for salvation and adoption into his family, he does this our passage tells us, before even creating us, before the foundations of the world. And if this is true, then it is abundantly clear that there is nothing about our performance, nothing about our goodness, our religi religiosity, that actually saves us. 
Now that's really good news. As we'll see in this passage and throughout the book of Ephesians, if we're relying on our goodness and our religiosity and all that, uh, we are actually settling for something far less than what God has offered to us. So last week was that idea of God choosing us. This week, the main idea is in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? This phrase is used over and over again in these first 14 verses. shows up throughout the rest of the, the book too, but really in these first 14 verses. Before we get into that, what I'd like you to do is find somebody near you to talk to and pull out the white sheet of paper, flip it over so that it's blank at the top right, I am in, and then dot, 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 and just work together and come up with a list of things that you are in. You can take that very concretely, you can take that abstractly, but just I'll give you a minute or so, come up with a list of things that you are in. Yeah, work together. Then after about a minute, I'll see if anybody wants to volunteer to to share any of their answers of what you are in. Looking forward to hearing those. Give you about 20 more seconds. All right. That we have some similar answers scattered throughout. Anybody willing to share one answer? You are in what? Clothes. Your clothes. We are thankful for that. He is in his clothes. That's good. Anybody else? What are you? What are you in? Marriage. You are in a marriage. Good. Friendships. Friendships. Good. This world. Okay. What else are we in? We are in Christ. Good. I heard one down here, sometime we're in trouble, yeah, serious trouble, yeah. Katie, did you come up with anything? You're in adulthood, all right. So, some might argue against that, but yeah, so yeah. Anything else you are in? You're in pain, yeah. And you are in waiting also, yeah, yeah. How many more weeks? Five more weeks. Okay. Okay. Almost done. Almost done. Yeah. All right. Well, if we took it real literally, we could say you're in a pew, right? You are uh, in the sanctuary in a church building. You're in Versailles. You're in Dark County. You're in Ohio, in the U.S., in the world, in the solar system, in the Milky Way, in the universe. You're in all those things, right? If you are a member of VCC, then you're in VCC in a different way than just being in the church building, right? You can be in different relationships, like we got marriage and friendship. 
You can be part of a family. Uh, you can be in the process of destroying relationships. You could be in sin. It would be the opposite of being in Christ. You could also be in secret. What I'd like to do right now is read through our whole 14 verses. Last week I had you stand, but this week I want you to sit, pull out something to write with, and I want you to underline or mark up every time you see either the words in Christ or the idea of being in Christ as we go through this. So, 14 verses, you're looking for the theme of in Christ. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's a lot of in hymns and in Christ's in there. So let's talk about it. Verses 1 and 2 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first time we come across that idea of in Christ, there's an adjective in front of it, the idea of being faithful in Christ Jesus, which when I read that makes me ask the question, is it possible to be in Christ and be unfaithful? I sure hope so. I've been in Christ since I was in eighth grade and Jesus saved me, but there have been lots of times when I've been unfaithful and yet Christ has still held on to me. He's kept me in him. What I'd like you to see in these first two verses is this idea that we are secure in Christ not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. So this this is the doctrine of we would say the perseverance of the saints or the the doctrine of eternal security. I would say it this way. There's a slide for this, Matthew. Just as it is the work of Christ that saves you, so it is the work of Christ that keeps you. You have been saved not by your own goodness, your own good works, your own faithfulness. If you are in Christ, then you are saved by his good works on your behalf. And he is the one who is completely faithful, even when we are not. So if you are in Christ, if you are united in him, then his faithfulness, this is the amazing part, is counted toward yours. It's credited to your account. 
We could look at that first verse and see how Paul is greeting those who are faithful in Christ Jesus and recognize that if they are faithful in any way, just like if we are faithful in any way, it is ultimately Christ's faithfulness counted to our account that makes that difference. Just as Christ saves us through his work, he keeps us through his work. A friend of mine who's a pastor in southern Ohio uh, shared a quote on Facebook this week that fit well with this. I wanted to share it with you guys. This comes from Pastor John Piper, who is in uh, Minnesota, great theologian pastor. I respect him so much. He says this about whether or not he will remain in Christ. He says, if you ask me how I know that tomorrow I will still be in Christ, my answer is not that I am a disciplined person or that I, am finish, that I finish what I start, or that my will is reliable, or that the benefits outweigh the cost, or even that my church prays for me. My answer is, Christ shed his blood as the price of the new covenant, and in this covenant, God promises, they will not turn away from me. God's sovereign right and grace over my fickle will is my only hope for persevering to the end. This is the sweet reality of the sovereignty of God. What can be sweeter than to be kept by the power of God? Now, sadly, there are millions of false Christians in the world who are not actually in Christ, have not been saved. They do not belong to Christ. They appear to be Christians. They may even be a church leader, pastor, or a pope, but they are outside of Christ still lost, still dead in their sins. But if you are truly saved, you are now and forever in Christ. He will never let you go. You are secure in him for eternity. You are kept secure by grace through faith in Christ alone, just as you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So how does God the Father bless his people? This verse tells us he blesses us in Christ. Does that mean that he sees those who are in Christ and he pours out blessing on them, or that he blesses them by bringing them into Christ or bringing them through Christ to himself? The answer is yes, it is both of those things. Now, if we're talking about just regular life stuff, regular life blessings, this is not necessarily the case. So most Christians believe this idea of common grace, that God gives the whole world different kinds of common grace. The fact that we live in a, in a country that has a, a sort of functional government and we can kind of count on the laws to work the way that they're supposed to, or the fact that we have streets to drive on and we live in a pretty safe community, or that gravity continues to work, those are all common graces, gifts of God given to people in general. But this verse is talking not about a common grace, but a particular grace, a grace given to particular people. When it says here that Christ, or that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he's speaking just about people who are in Christ. If you are out of Christ, you do not have the blessings of Christ, those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Specifically, 
You don't have forgiveness or reconciliation or redemption or new life or the promise of eternity with God. But if you are in Christ, then you are blessed with those spiritual blessings. This will be played out more in the next few verses, four through six. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So this makes the case that God chose us, predestined us for adoption into his family. Verse 4 tells us that this choosing was in him. In who? That in him is in Christ. The Father has chosen us in Christ for adoption. When did this happen? Tells us it was before we were created. How are we adopted into the family of God? Verse verse 5 tells us that it's through Jesus Christ. And that is an act of grace. It's a free gift from God to us. It says that God blessed us in the beloved, capital B, referring to Jesus as that beloved. And if you are in Christ, then the blessings that rightly are deserved by Jesus the beloved are poured out on you, even though you don't deserve them. We can understand why the Father would love the Son and refer to Him as the Beloved. He was perfect. Imagine having a child that always obeyed you, always did your will, always sought to please you. Can't, Can't even imagine it, right? But that's the relationship between the Father and the Son. So of course He's the Beloved. What's amazing is that we have been blessed in the Beloved with his blessing. How is it possible that God would welcome us into his family? Verse 7, in him, meaning in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So that's how we are adopted in. Jesus did what was necessary to deal with our sins. We were slaves to our sins. Jesus redeemed us. That's the word that's in there. We have redemption. Redeemed us out of slavery, purchased us out of slavery, even when we were full of our trespasses and sins. Jesus died in our place. This happens if we are what? According to this, if we are in him. And don't miss the little part in here that explains to us that it's not our goodness or our performance, but it is God setting a certain standard that is far above our performance and then achieving that standard himself. We are forgiven not according to our own goodness, but according to the goodness of Christ. We do not pay a certain amount and hope to get saved. Instead, it is according to the riches of God in Christ Jesus. God's grace is rich beyond our ability to understand. Now, let's go off on a little bit of a tangent here about this idea of riches. Each of us has a net worth. So if you take everything that's in your bank account and stashed under the bed and you add up all the, the, the value of everything you own, your cars, your house, all that stuff, 
and then you subtract any debt or bills that you have due or anything like that, you come up with a net worth. Imagine a pile that represents your net worth. You can throw your house in there and your cars in there and all that stuff, right? Now, maybe if you've got a lot of debt, you actually have to dig a hole and put everything in the hole because your net worth is below ground level, right? But you still, you got a pile there. I want you to picture that pile, whatever it is. Maybe you got a small pile, maybe you got a big pile. However big and impressive that pile is, it is nothing compared to the story that I'm about to tell you. So let's go to the next picture. On June 8, 1708, so 314 years and four days ago, there was a great maritime battle off the coast of Colombia. Now, this oil painting depicts the moment when cannon fire from a British ship blew up the Spanish ship known as the San Jose. This ship had a crew of 600 people on it, which is just amazing when you consider the size of these ships. I mean, they're bigger than anything sailing around on Grand Lake St. Mary's, but 600 people. It also had an impressive 62 cannons pointed outwards. But those cannons were not enough, and the British sunk the ship. All 600 men sunk 3,000 feet to the ocean floor. And for 311 years, the location of this wreck was a mystery. But three years ago, a crew successfully located it, surveyed the wreck with an underwater vehicle, is amazingly intact. It didn't just break up. It sunk to the bottom, mostly as one piece, and it's upright. This mysterious wreck had been considered the holy grail of shipwrecks because what was believed to be in it, the cargo. Those who knew what, were in, what was in it had recorded it. There's a pile of gold on this ship yet to be recovered that was mined out of the Amazon rainforest, and if you take it to today's value, it's not in the millions, it's $17 billion in gold sitting at the bottom of the ocean. Our net worth compared to that sunken treasure is like our goodness compared to the goodness of Christ. There's not much of a comparison. And I don't know about you guys, but I am not interested in being judged by my goodness if instead I could be judged by Christ's. That's the good news of the gospel. You do not have to be judged by your goodness. You can instead receive Christ's goodness. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, when you read in the New Testament and you see the word mystery or mystery of the gospel, it's generally referring to this idea that God has mysteriously opened the doors of his family, opened them wide, and, and welcomed in the Gentiles. For all of the Old Testament, the plan was there to welcome the Gentiles in, but it was masked, it was hidden, nobody could see it. And it's not until we get to the New Testament that the mystery is revealed, that God is not just choosing and loving and saving that chosen group of people, the, the Jewish nation, but that he's welcoming all who would trust in Christ alone for salvation. That is the mystery of the gospel in the New Testament. Verse 10 tells us that this mystery was God's plan all along, but he's waiting for the fullness of time, just the right time to unite all things in heaven and on earth. 
What is that supposed to mean? Does this mean that God is mysteriously united with rocks and trees and iPhones and evil people like Hitler? That is not what Paul is trying to say here. That is the idea of panentheism, the idea that God is, is somehow part of and in everything and united with everything. That is not what Paul is saying. We know that because he's specifically talking about a group of people that he refers to as in Christ. It is in him that God is uniting all things to himself. If you are in Christ, you are united with God the Father. That doesn't mean you are God the Father, but you are bound to him as Christ is bound to. Verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So, how did we obtain this inheritance? How did we get it? We get it if we are in him. There is no inheritance unless you are in him. And what is this inheritance? Well, it's those, those blessings mentioned earlier, the blessings in the, in the heavenly realm. They're the, the spiritual blessings of forgiveness, of acceptance into the family of God. Our inheritance is eternal life with God. Now, this says that we've already had this inheritance secured for us, specifically through the sealing of the Holy Spirit for us. We're already adopted into the family of God. If we are in Christ, but we have not yet taken possession of that inheritance. This is what we call the already and the not yet. We are already in Christ. We are not yet in possession of our inheritance. In the meantime, we are to hope in Christ. Not hope in ourselves, not hope in each other, not hope in the government to bail us out. We hope in Christ. Last two verses. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So if we lay out 13 and 14 on a timeline, this is what it would look like. We're going to start our timeline with, you heard the gospel, and then you believed the gospel, and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Someday, then, you will take possession of that inheritance, but you're in this little gap now, the already and the not yet, where these things are true of you. They are guaranteed you have this destiny, but it's not yet realized or taken possession of. Notice that the first one, the hearing of the gospel, and the believing of the gospel includes the word, the gospel. Just to be clear, let me make sure you know what that means. The gospel is the good news that comes after the bad news. The bad news is that you are an enemy of God. That you were shaking your fist at the God of the universe saying, you will not rule over me. I will be my own boss. I will go my own way. And because of that rebellion, just like our father Adam way back in the beginning... 
we deserve eternal punishment and what the Bible refers to as hell. That's the bad news. But the good news, the gospel good news, is that God made a way for you to not have to be punished like that. He made a way for your sins to be forgiven through the death of Jesus on your behalf. He made that way. So that if you would turn from relying on yourself, turn from your sin, and trust only in Him, you would become a child of God. You would be forgiven. This is what we call the great exchange. Your sin is given to Christ. Christ's righteousness is given to you. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He, that means God the Father, made Him, God the Son, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So he was without sin. He had no sin of his own. And yet, in the plan, the perfect plan of God, in the fullness of time, Jesus, the perfect one, takes all of our sin upon himself, somehow becomes sin, the essence of sin in that moment. So that in him, there's that phrase again, different letter, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Without this great exchange, None of us have any hope. Here's a diagram that I would put in your mind for understanding this. So our sin gets transferred to Christ. Christ's righteousness gets transferred to us. We don't deserve it. It's a gift of grace. That is the great exchange. In Romans 8, verse 1, we see this again. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm hoping that as we go through these different verses here, and you realize that this phrase in Christ is not just in the book of Ephesians, but it's throughout the New Testament. I hope that now as you read the New Testament, little lights are going to go off every time you come to that, and you're going to think back to Ephesians, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. What does this verse say? It says, as you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Not like a reduced sentence or a probation or a silly idea like you got to go to purgatory and like earn your way out of some residual condemnation. That, that is not what this is saying at all. This is saying right now, word is in there, now, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. It's completely gone if you are in Christ. Nothing. Zilch. Nada. There's another key verse for you about this great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you're a completely new creation. That is only true if you are in Christ. So if you're in Christ and you've, you've heard the gospel, you've believed the gospel, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, you're someday going to take possession of it, you are a son or daughter of God, you will spend eternity with him. Let's consider what might happen before that timeline. Let's read Romans 10, 14, and 15 and get an idea of what happens right before that. In this book, the Apostle Paul, again, he's giving instructions to the Romans, and he's saying, look, you guys, you got to tell people about Jesus. you got to send people out as missionaries. And he says this in Romans 10, 14, and 15. 
How then will they, speaking of the lost people out in the world, how will they call on him of whom they have not believed? Speaking of calling on Christ for salvation. And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So if we take Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and we mix it with Romans 10, 14 and 15, and Ephesians 1, 4, which is this idea of God predestining, choosing beforehand, well, then our timeline actually looks like this next slide. We say that God, in eternity past, he chose you, and then God and the church sent a preacher. That doesn't mean somebody necessarily up here preaching, but somebody to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. That somebody went out from the body of Christ and shared with you the gospel. Then you heard the gospel, and you believed the gospel, and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and someday you'll take possession of it, of your inheritance. All of this is to the praise of the glory of God. Now, if you're already in Christ, you're like, man, I've heard this so many times. Well, let me ask you this. Where do you fit on this if this is somebody else's timeline? If you're looking at somebody else's life, where are you in this? If they are going to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, be sealed by the Holy Spirit, be promised that inheritance, they first must hear the gospel. According to Paul's logic in Romans 10, that means somebody's got to be sent out. Are you wondering if you are sent out? Then the answer is yes, you are. Jesus makes that clear in the Great Commission. He says, go, make disciples of all nations. You are sent you are there in that first half of that timeline for somebody else. If, if Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 is true, if those who are in Christ are sealed in him for redemption, for the promise of the inheritance, eternal life with Christ, and that it is only those who are in Christ that receive this promise, will you be willing to tell other people about that? Or will you say, I'm in Christ, I'm going to hang out in Christ and ignore those who are outside of Christ, I'm going to say, safe and secure in Christ. You have been saved in Christ alone, will you remain alone in Christ? It is my hope that as we go through Ephesians, you will recognize, it will resonate in your soul the greatness of the grace and mercy given to you. And that you will want to share that with others. Whether it's your children or grandchildren or other members of your family or friends or co-workers, those who are outside of Christ. They need someone sent as a proclaimer of the gospel so they might hear it and might believe it. Let's pray. Father, we're both in awe of what you have done for us and overwhelmed at the thought of you using us to do this for somebody else. Lord, sometimes the, the thought of trying to start a conversation in which we talk about the gospel is terrifying to us. We wonder if people will hate us and reject us if we tell them that they are hopeless without Christ. We wonder if they'll think we're crazy if we tell them that we, we think that, that a guy who died 
2,000 years ago, somehow took the penalty for our sins, and they even raised from the dead in order to prove it that many would think we're crazy. And yet, Lord, that, that message is the thing that they need to hear. So for those of us, Lord, who are in Christ, would you please put in us a, a burning desire to see others in Christ? As we sing this last song about us being uh, in Christ alone, knowing that it is only through Christ that we are saved, Lord, would you work in us, soften our hearts, give us courage, help us to, to heed the call that you've given us so that we can proclaim this message of salvation in Christ alone to those who desperately need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.